In fact, I figure that the longer that my tomatoes can spend in a, in a heated propagation house, um, the better they are. One, one of the tricks of greenhouse growers that I talk about in the book is just growing a bigger transplant. So I can keep them in a heated structure where they're going to be happy until those temperatures do, do moderate. That's Andrew Mefford, author of a fantastic book about hoop house and greenhouse production for vegetable growers. And this is a new season of the Ruminant Podcast. The Ruminant is a website and podcast that wonders what good farming looks like. You can find out more at theruminant.ca and you can contact me at ruminantblog on Twitter and editor at theruminant.ca. All right, let's do a show. So, Jordan, where you been, buddy? Good question, everyone. So, yeah. Last year got away on me a bit, and to be honest, I wasn't that surprised. Last February, February 2017, uh, my wife and I had our first child, and that happened in the same year that I moved farms and uh, was starting out uh, there on on a whole lot more land. So uh, it came as not a big surprise when I just couldn't find the time to produce the podcast. And I'm sorry about that, but not like too sorry, you know? Uh, I just couldn't do it, so I didn't do it. But now I can do it, so I'm going to do it. Uh, I thank those who have stuck with me in terms of keeping uh, keeping my podcast in your in your podcast feed. And I've I've got a good lucky feeling about the season to come. I've already got about I don't know six or seven episodes in the bag and a bunch more lined up. And I think I figured out a way that I can keep this going well into the spring, if not the summer. Now, there's more I have to update you about, but I think I will just roll out those updates slowly over the next few episodes. So uh, let's just move on to the subject of today's episode, and that is greenhouse production. A year ago, not quite a year ago, I had the opportunity to speak with Andrew Mefford, who is the editor of Growing for Market, which is a really good trade publication for market gardeners, if you haven't checked that out. And Andrew also over the course of his farming career has built up a ton of expertise on what he calls protected culture really what i think most european growers call protected culture growing under hoops and other structures essentially anyway andrew wrote published a book uh early last year it's called the greenhouse and hoop house growers handbook and i talked to him sometime last spring and the whole intention was to get that episode up but of course by then i had stopped being able to produce the show so here we are Here's what I can tell you though. I own the book. The publisher was kind enough to send me one in preparation for the interview. And it is one of one of the best resources I currently own, I think, as far as uh, as far as improving my knowledge on the farm and in terms of its potential to increase my profit margin. I really, really have enjoyed reading and rereading this book, and I strongly suggest anyone who wants to get into hoop house or greenhouse production or just improve the production they're already doing that they they check this thing out so that's guest number one i had andrew on and we talked a little bit about just one sliver of what's in his fantastic book more recently i had the chance to talk to an extension specialist out at cornell called judson reed and judson has got 
a long background in agriculture and he kind of wears a few different hats in his extension position. But one of those hats is on protected culture, on greenhouse and hoop house production. And uh, I talked to him just a few days ago and we had a really great chat about something I hadn't thought a lot about before, which is managing your greenhouse soil properly so that you don't throw the nutrient balance and the, the acidity or pH of your soil out of balance as you grow crop after crop in the same piece of covered soil. I learned a lot from Justin, I think you will too. And so he's coming up second in this episode. But first, my conversation with Andrew Mefford. I hope you like it and I'll be talking to you at the end of the show. Andrew Mefford, thanks a lot for joining me on the Ruminant Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jordan. It's a pleasure. Andrew, I just want to start by congratulating you on uh, publishing this book. Uh, it's uh, I've had a, a good look at it. It's a beautiful book, an informative book, and I think it's going to help a lot of growers. I think uh, where I want to start is is not is not focused on the technical uh, aspects of the book, which it makes up the majority of the book. I'm I'm actually really curious to ask you about the start of the book. I was surprised to see how you started the book. In in the introduction, you make a case for growers, uh, particularly small-scale growers, embracing what you call protected culture uh, so that, well, to improve, to improve food security and to take on big, big agriculture. I, thought, I, I, I was surprised the book to start that way, and it was kind of refreshing. And I, I uh, yeah, I, can you talk a little bit about why you started the book that way? Yeah, sure. Um, only something like 1% of, of the food consumed um, in our country is is coming from local um, is coming from local agriculture, and so I think that uh, th- that's an unlimited growth market, pretty much. You know, if, if you look at local ag having one percent of of the total market share, I mean, that that should be seen as an opportunity. It means that that uh, you know local producers have ninety nine percent growth room, um, and and one of the most obvious ways for me to grow is just to to extend the season. And that's why I'm so enthusiastic about what I call protected culture in the book, which is, I mean, uh, greenhouses and hoop houses. And the reason I think this book is important is because because um, what I was able to do with Johnny's is that I, I got um, I got in touch with a lot of um, researchers at universities and, and um, seed companies and, and larger commercial growers using techniques that I had never seen before. And they were just so much... So much more efficient and high production than 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 the techniques that I I had been exposed to when I was apprenticing and learning. And what I realized is that most of the farms that I worked on, almost every farm that I worked on, had a greenhouse or a hoop house, or some of both. But what they were doing was more like field style growing in in a greenhouse or hoop house. And I realized that these larger commercial growers. Uh, had a, a totally different style of growing that was really tailored to uh, specialized techniques in greenhouse or hoop house. And, and so what, what, um, after I was exposed to those techniques, what it made me wonder was how applicable they were to smaller farms. Essentially what I did was I tried out these, um, these more high-tech techniques in my hoop house and, um, and in the trials at Johnny's, and I found they worked really well. And so... So um, that's why I wanted to write the book to um, to to expose to expose smaller growers to these to these specialized greenhouse techniques, which in my experience they, they were not 
they were not using. If you think about it, almost any local area has some limitation on seasonality, right? I mean, there, there might be some really choice areas, uh, coastal areas or something, that have an almost unlimited season. But almost anywhere, almost anywhere you're growing is either going to be limited by being too hot or too cold. And what I see protected culture doing is it, it, it makes the season longer. So to me, um, putting greenhouses and hoop houses up on small farms is extending local food season. Well, Andrew, uh, thank you for that. That uh, and and I, I I think what you've done. I think I think this is going to be a game changer. Um, but but I, and we're going to get on to to some of what you've covered in a minute. But when reading your book, it it you, it becomes apparent just how complex uh, doing protected culture well is, and I found it reassuring to know that that you started from a place of you alluded to this earlier but a very very little experience i mean your your early experiences uh working with you know having your own hoop houses in maine were, were a far cry it seems to me uh from from how you do things now and i think i think that could uh, provide a little bit of uh optimism or hope for for people who are who are struggling with protected culture Oh, yeah. I would encourage people to, um, you know, if they're thinking about putting up a, up a greenhouse or a hoop house, to go ahead and, and, and do it. Because on the one hand, like you, you said, Jordan, it is very it, it can be very complicated. On the other hand, you can get up to speed very quickly on, on, on it. If you um, try this stuff out on your own farm, you can, you can get through the least, uh, the least advanced stuff. You can get through the beginner stages pretty fast. And then you're going to be wanting more. And so, once again, I, instead of instead of doing like a beginner hoop house book and an advanced hoop house book, I thought it was it was a lot better just to throw it all in there. Let people read the book and 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 let them decide how much of it they want to do. I, what I, I think what I say in the book is that I want it to be like an a la carte menu of of techniques and ideas. You know, I want this to be a tool that growers can use to to develop their own style of growing. I think I think you've achieved that, Andrew. I I can say that that you've written the book in a way that that allows growers like me to just pick and choose, and even if I just want to make incremental improvements. So, um, and 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 nowhere, you know, one one chapter I'm 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 really grateful for that you know didn't need to be in there if you hadn't been thinking of, uh, you know, the 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 beginners. Uh, is is your is your chapter on protected culture plant basics? I was so grateful for that, Andrew. I'm I'm a little bit ashamed to say this as a grower with six years experience, but. You know, I haven't focused a lot on on just like learning the pretty like just the basics of plant uh, of photosynthesis, transpiration, and respiration. And you provide a really useful chapter that breaks that down. Uh, and I think one reason I'm not, I'm I'm saying that out loud uh, is because I know there's there's probably tons of other small scale growers like me who are doing their overall their systems really well, um, but but somehow find themselves a few years into their to their business and they still don't really understand plant physiology all that well. Yeah, and, and and you're not the first person um, that I've heard that from, and and, it, and um, I I felt like I had to break it down there because in most of the things that you're doing with greenhouse growing, you're con you're controlling either temperature or humidity, um, or or water or something else to to influence one of those three three things, um, respiration, transpiration, or photosynthesis. And I thought, well, people need to understand, you know, why. If it's 100% humidity in their greenhouse, that the plants aren't going to transpire anymore. You know, we need we need to we need to. I, I thought we need to break it down and talk about what you're really doing 
you know, what you're really trying to manipulate about your plant. And, and so, and I thought that was the, the most useful way because cause that's it. I, I don't want just, I don't want people just to, to sort of like read it and nod their heads. You know, I want to understand, I want people to understand why they're doing what they're doing so they can go off and, uh, and you know, make their own, their own temperature um, scheme or their own, their own humidity scheme. Or, you know, I, I'm trying to empower growers to make their own, decisions and management styles, you know, not, not just read my book and, and do it because it was in the book. I want them to, to read it and do it because, um, because, because they understand it. Andrew, for the rest of the interview, I just want to focus uh, on just a couple of the topics that you cover in your book. Uh, and as you say, there's something in here for the beginner and the advanced protected culture grower. But I want to focus on, on the less experienced uh, particularly because a lot of my listeners are going to be small scale uh, market gardeners, and for whom for whom like mm-hmm. even even five thousand dollars represents a big expense in their farm, and and so oh, sure. one topic I'd like to have you cover is is caterpillar tunnels, um, because they're a common uh, first kind of step towards protected culture for for growers who who don't have big budgets, and I was wondering if you could kind of try and briefly summarize if we take a crepe crop like tomatoes. How, how does how does a grower like me with a hundred foot caterpillar tunnel um, make the most of that caterpillar tunnel to grow decent tomatoes? Could you comment on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. You know, my my thoughts about how to get the most out of a caterpillar tunnel would be um, you can look at the the temperature recommendations in the book for one thing, and um, some people think that um, well, what, what could what good do these temperature recommendations do me? Because I can't control the temperature in a in a caterpillar tunnel. Well, that's true, but you can control when the plants go into the caterpillar tunnel. Because uh, so so you know my my idea is that you could look in the book and see what the minimum temperature is for the um, for tomatoes for your your example, Jordan. So look at the minimum temperature and um, and just try and plant your tomatoes after that temperature that minimum temperature is achieved um, in your area. One example from my experience, Jordan, is uh, when when I first started growing in hoop houses, I was just so eager to put my plants out there. You know, I would I would um, I would just watch the weather forecast, and in the first week, um, the first week that that um, temperatures were solidly out of freezing, I would I would go out and um, plant my tomatoes. And um, two things would happen. Well, the first thing is that they would, of course revise that weather forecast as soon as I planted the tomatoes back into freezing weather. And so I'd end up just biting my nails, uh, worrying that my tomatoes were going to get killed. And um, I, I had a lot of, I just had a lot of seconds. I had a lot of cat-based fruit and a lot of uh, messed up fruit and the disease at the beginning of the season. And at that point, what I didn't realize was that um, not only do temperatures not, toma- not only do tomatoes not want to be in freezing weather, um, they don't want to be anywhere near those those kind of temperatures, and so um, one of the one of the manifestations of that was the cat facing. What happens when when um, when when tomato blossoms are exposed to temperatures that are that are much colder than they want to be um, exposed to? Uh, the the the, um, the developing tissue in in the um, in the flower. Um, starts sticking to itself, and and, and it it um, doesn't develop properly, and that's why we get cat facing. So cat facing being all kinds of uh, sort of weird tuckerings and deformities and and openings in the skin, and another thing we get is zippering. It's these 
these um, long long scars that run along the tomato that that have um, look kind of like a zipper. They're they're long and skinny with little um, uh, little little dots on them almost. They look kind of like a zipper, and so um, that's that's one thing a lot of growers don't understand is that that um, planting their tomatoes. Um, when it's too cold, leaves all these deformities, and so people say, "Well, my uh, my tomatoes were deformed at the beginning of the season, and then they grew out of it." And I mean, technically that's true, but what really happened is that the temperatures came up into a temperature range where they weren't um, they weren't getting uh, deformities anymore. And so my my best recommendation, uh, you know, what I started doing was just just being patient. <laughs> I don't I don't uh, I'm not chomping at the bit to, to plant my tomatoes out there as soon as possible anymore. In fact, I figure that the longer that my tomatoes can spend in a, in a heated propagation house, um, the better they are. One, one of the tricks of greenhouse growers that I talk about in the book is just growing a bigger transplant. Is that um, because 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 uh, any of these vining fruiting crops, you know, this applies to tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, and eggplant. But uh, to go back to your your example, Jordan. Um, Tomatoes in protected culture are are coddled. Even even if you don't have a fancy hoop house or greenhouse, even even just in a caterpillar tunnel, your tomatoes are being exposed to less wind, and that um, keeps the rain off. And they're just they're just a little bit more protect, protected than out in the field. And so you can let the plants get bigger because if you can if you think about it, one of the reasons you you, you might not want to plant a really huge tomato plant out in the field is because they're going to get blown around by the wind and beat up by the weather, whereas they're, they're protected in, in, in a caterpillar tunnel. And so, so what I've gone to doing is, is, um, is just waiting until temperatures have moderated. I start my seeds at the same time. I just let the plants get bigger and, and, and that requires some planning, um, ideally because you would have some bigger pots on hand, right? So, so I, I, um, I, I plant my tomato plants at least up into a quart size container now and um, in fact, a lot of times I'll I'll put a little um, like a uh, shish kebab skewer by the plants, and I'll I'll rubber band the plant to that shish kebab skewer because I'm letting them get so big that they they would um, probably start flopping over. But that's the way that I can really start the plants early, but also keep them in a heated structure. My you know in my case my propagation greenhouse, right? So I can keep them in a heated structure where they're going to be happy until those temperatures do do moderate and so so that would be those would be my suggestions if you have you know if you just have a very simple um caterpillar tunnel is to grow a big plant um graft i mean grafting is one thing i spent a lot of time on the book largely because i got tons of questions um about that when i was working at johnny's i mean grafting grafting actually is a great example of a technology that you you actually get more out of when you're um, in a less, in I'll say a less optimized situation. So by that I mean, it's grafting is a technology that has greater returns the less sophisticated your your operation is. Because um, what one of the things that the grafting does is it helps the plant overcome adversity. So if your soil isn't as fertile as it should be or isn't perfectly fertilized, if your temperatures are too cold or too hot, even even things like soil salinity. Almost all of the adversity that your your crop might might uh, encounter uh, grafting grafting basically, you know the the quick and dirty way to explain it is grafting gives your plant a stronger constitution. And so um, in in fairly uh, in hoop houses actually I, I did a lot of trials with grafted plants um, when I was at Johnny's and in in most of the the um, sort of unheated 
poop houses, organic types of situations that I was working in, I would I would see a 30 to 50 percent yield increase uh, on the grafted plants over the same variety that's not grafted. And um, by comparison, if you go into a big greenhouse um, that's uh, probably even hydroponic, um, they're getting more like 10 percent. And what what's going on there is that they've already optimized so many of the conditions um, that 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 grafting is just the cherry on top. You know, grafting is the icing on the cake for, they're already getting an enormous yield. So just to add 10% onto an already enormous yield is a big 10%, but but it actually, um, I, I, I would say a smaller scale organic um, grower is usually gonna get a bigger bigger boost than a, um, a larger commercial grower would out of grafting because their situation is less optimized and grafting helps to overcome that. So those would be my suggestions. Um, to graft and to also and to also manage manage temperature as well as you possibly can. Um, for example, um, be be um, be vigilant about um, if it's caterpillar tunnel about pushing up those sides. I know a lot of caterpillar tunnels that have the, the lacing over top of the tunnel. Um, you you have to get out there and, and actually push the plastic up and down. I would say that um, if you can at all afford it. If you're going to build a caterpillar tunnel anyway, you should invest in roll-up sides. And the reason being, the temperature management is so important. If it's easy to do and it's quicker to do, you're going to do it more often, right? And it's one of those things you think you might think, well, it's not that big of a deal to get out there and, and push the plastic up. But most of the caterpillar tunnels I've seen, you have to actually go there between each each um, set of hoops and push push the plastic up. So you end up having to do it. I don't know, 10 or 20 times a side, depending on how long your your um, your your um, caterpillar your tunnel is. And so, if it's a day where it's getting sunny and then getting cloudy and sunny again, you're not going to be inclined to to run over there every time the, the weather changes and um, and and roll the sides up or down. Especially if you're off in the back 40 doing something else. So, you know, that, that's one of the things that I learned from big greenhouses is invest in 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 um, equipment that makes you more efficient because you're gonna you're gonna get more done and so your your plants are gonna be a lot healthier if you are um, rolling the sides up or down for ventilation um, when you really should so so th- those would be um, those would be my my broadest suggestion for someone with a a, a caterpillar tunnel is, is use the temperature recommendations grafts and tomato plants. Um, and, uh, and invest in roll-up sides, and, and um, that, I think those are the things that should help you get them get get more out of a, a caterpillar tunnel. Great, Andrew. And can you just talk generally about? Uh, I guess because I, here's another one I think that a lot of growers like me kind of don't don't fully appreciate is is the vast yield improvements when you uh, when you plant super densely, uh, as well as uh, when you really when you really focus on proper pruning. Can you speak to those two things? Oh yeah, sure. In fact, in fact, um, if if I could summarize um, what the uh, what the difference is between greenhouse type planting and, and field style, um, the most basic difference is um, is denser planting. Okay, and I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like that is the basis of just getting more plants into your into into your structure. Of, of course, I mean it's 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 
obvious. You know, when you put more plants in, you're going to get more uh, more yield. But um, what's not obvious is the changes that you have to make to to uh, to, to make that happen of of more plants being healthy. And so, um, the, the most basic thing is to plant. Um, particularly, we're talking the vining uh, crops like tomatoes. You know, basically, if you can get more more um, plants into your your precious protected real estate, you're going to get a higher yield. But then you have to keep them healthy. And so, the most the most basic way to get more more of the vining crops into um, into a structure is to plant in double rows instead of single rows. Okay, you know, in the book I have I have suggested layouts and and plant densities for each crop. But the the, you know, the basic on that is if um, you know what I see most smaller growers doing is planting a single row down the middle of a bed, and if you if you plant two rows in that bed, you're going to have half the half the space devoted to pathway, and you're going to have get a lot more plants in. Um, of course, you're also going to have less airflow, so that's why that the the pruning is so important because. Um, one of the things that you can do to make up for the denser planting is, is just to prune more. And so uh, particularly in um, tomatoes and eggplants, um, my recommendation is to, um, is to take all the leaves off um, below the developing fruit clusters. And then um, what that does is it, it opens up airflow down at the base of the plant where things tend to be the most humid and the airflow tends to be the worst. And um, and the other thing that that does is those those leaves are going to be uh, the first ones to get infected. And, and anybody who's grown a even just a field tomato crop, where does the disease come from? It starts on the lower leaves and tends to spread up the plant. So if you take um, if you take the leaves off proactively before they get diseased, they can't really harbor the disease uh, to travel up the plant. So these are the kinds of things that I'm trying to talk about and help people decide which, uh, which, wh- what management style suits them. Well, Andrew Mefford, you've written a great book. I think, uh, like I said at the start, I think it's going to help a lot of growers. I'm certainly grateful that I now have a copy. Uh, so thank you for, for making this effort to improve the results of people growing in protected culture. And thanks a lot for joining me on the Ruminant Podcast. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for having me, Jordan. It was a, it was a blast. Hello, yeah, this is Judson Reed. I am um, a senior extension associate with Cornell University in New York State. Uh, My ag background, well, I grew up on a uh, 220-acre farm in New York State. From there, I earned undergraduate and graduate degrees in agriculture from Cornell University and went on to work for the university in a research extension and administrative capacity. Professionally, my agricultural interests are around uh, season extension, so I do a lot of work researching um, nutrient management inside uh, enclosed settings, and uh, as well as pest management, natural pest management in those settings as well. Judson Reed, thanks a lot for joining me on the Ruminant Podcast. You're welcome, Jordan. Thank you very much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Judson, at, as an extension specialist at Cornell, I, I know you do a lot. You have a, a large focus on season extension and hoop house and, and greenhouse production. Uh, and sure. I also 
I also noticed that you conduct a lot of site visits to farms in New York State. And I thought I would start by asking you if you, if, 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 uh, if, any, if you encounter any common mistakes uh, that, that prevent, uh, you know, some farmers from, from, from maximizing their, their revenues in, in their hoop houses and greenhouses. Sure. Great question, Jordan. So I think, I think the most common mistake is to, in a sense, look at what are the above-ground management practices and benefits that come from season extension technologies, whether that's an uh, inexpensive cold frame or hoop house or all the way up to uh, more advanced technologies, is the above-ground portion of that. Um, I think farmers see the benefits and they manage the, um, the the crop intensively above ground. And then I think what's going on below ground, which is a little bit less intuitive, um, less visual, is the most common mistake is that we turn a blind eye to what are the long-term practices to maintain sustainability, particularly in a soil-based system, where nutrients and other other factors build up over time. That is probably the most common um, mistake. And so this is really long-term or slow motion management. And the early years that people enter into this, and here in the Northeastern U.S., there's been a real rapid entry into this type of production um, for a number of reasons. Um, and in the first few years, I think farmers see a lot of benefits. They see increased yields, increased crop health, hopefully decreased diseases. Um, and then as they're realizing those benefits, above ground, they're not seeing what is going on below ground in terms of, say, calcium or phosphorus levels over time building up. That is so interesting, Judson, because I, I just didn't expect you to 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 say that. And and perhaps I didn't because I'm in my first few years of tunnel production and, and maybe haven't started <laughs> to see some of those problems crop up. So that's terrific. Uh, let's, yeah. let's, let's dive into that a little bit then. So, um, you know, once, once some of those problems begin to accrue, what, what, you know, what are some of those problems and, and how do they end up presenting themselves? I think the first thing you have to do is, is take a look at the soil, um, with a soil test and, and work with whoever, whatever lab that you like to work with, um, um, or university in your state or province and, um, get an accurate reading of what's going on there in the soil. And um, if you're early on in this cycle, let's say you're in year zero, one, or two, um, you're in a better position to prevent problems from um, happening. And if you're further down the line, at least now we need to, like I say, admit that we have a problem, identify what that problem is. And so the common ones are generally phosphorus um, levels tend to be elevated. Um, in these settings over time, as well as calcium, magnesium, and pH. Uh, all of those levels tend to become too elevated over time, and then that interferes with uptake of some other nutrients, the standouts being potassium, and then a micronutrient that probably a lot of people don't give a lot of thought, um, manganese, uh, would be another common uh, victim of the really high levels we find in some of those other um, micro or uh, macronutrients or secondary nutrients. So Justin, can, so, I, can, I, can I interrupt you for a moment and just clarify? Do. You're, I assume you're talking about these problems being kind of specific to uh, indoor production. Like, is that what you're getting at? That some of these concentrations are building up 
in ways that don't happen as quickly outdoors? Absolutely. That's a great question, Jordan. So um, they are specific to indoor production for several reasons. Um, One is that we are we're increasing the yield potential of the crop when it's inside, whatever that is, tomatoes, cucumbers, greens, uh, peppers, uh, eggplants, et cetera. And so since the yield potential is higher because we're adding uh, growing degree days or heat units, uh, we're decreasing wind, we're decreasing pest pressure, we're extending the season, et cetera, um, the yield potential is higher, which means that the nutrient demand is higher for that crop. And nitrogen um, generally regarded as the most limiting nutrient uh, for yield potential. And so to meet the nitrogen requirement of these crops, we oftentimes add other nutrients at levels that we don't need to. And so phosphorus is a good example of that. Um, if we take a general use fertilizer, say a triple 20, which is 20% nitrogen, 20% phosphorus, and 20% potassium, we're adding that to the system based on the nitrogen demand of the crop. But the nitrogen and phosphorus are there in a one-to-one ratio, and that doesn't need to be the case. Mm. Um, and so then that, that phosphorus accumulates over time because it only, the plant only uses a fraction uh, of the amount of phosphorus as it does of, of nitrogen. Um, and so that happens more inside uh, than outside, again, because simply the nitrogen demand is higher. The other inside versus outside question example I'll use is calcium. So calcium, we we need that in ample supply, to, for, to particularly for fruiting vegetables and leafy greens, for that matter, uh, to produce a viable crop with good quality. However, oftentimes there's hidden sources of calcium, particularly in our irrigation water. And so through um, what we call calcium bicarbonate or alkalinity. Now, as that calcium bicarbonate or alkalinity, really it's a form of liquid lime. And I think most farmers and and gardeners are familiar with lime and its ability to raise pH and raise calcium levels in our native soils. Um, However, we're oftentimes adding a liquid lime unbeknownst in our irrigation water. And since we're growing inside, we have no rainfall. The crop depends entirely upon the irrigation water that we provide. And our irrigation water oftentimes, not always, it depends on where you are, but oftentimes is high in bicarbonates. And so that means that calcium accumulates over time inside, and there's no rain or snow to leach through the soil profile and decrease those levels of calcium. Right. And I had a feeling you were going to talk about the lack of natural water flowing through the system. Uh, yeah. So, so I'm, I'm wondering if, are you a huge advocate for mobile hoop houses or given that that's not a reality for a lot of farmers, do you just, do you just make recommendations for how to avoid these buildups or is it both? Well, yeah, Jordan, you're really, you're really driving into the the heart of the question there, which is there needs to be some sort of uh, way to prevent or solve that problem. And mobile, uh, structures are, are certainly one option. Uh, and so I think if people can have a movable hoop house, um, that really resolves a lot of the issues that we're seeing. I see the, the movable structures, are, the most successful ones I see are move movable, but not easily movable. Uh, 
-hmm. And so I'm talking about the type of structure that sits in one spot for maybe two years and then can be moved with some effort um, onto a fresh piece of ground that hopefully has had a cover crop, say clover or alfalfa, depending on uh, what you can grow where you are. Um, and then, and then we, of course, incorporate that and then grow in, in that new space. Um, and so those semi-movable structures or structures that are moved but not easily, for me, uh, offer the most appeal in that I see, my experience, is that the structures that move on tracks or wheels or casters are fairly susceptible to wind damage. Mm. And then the other, manage, the other management problem I see is that the movable structure is really not so much about soil health uh, or avoiding those nutrient problems I mentioned. It's more about providing some sort of season extension or protection to multiple crops throughout a calendar year. Mm -hmm. And so n now you're adding another management paradigm there, which is when does the crop that is not covered need to be covered? And when that crop needs to be covered, is the other one ready to be uncovered? And that may or may not be the case. And so if people who have movable tunnels could move away from the paradigm of trying to provide benefit to multiple crops within the same calendar year in different spaces and use them more for um, uh, keeping the soil balanced uh, nutrient-wise, that is where I would like to see things go. Well, it's, it almost, it almost, I mean, this is, this is a problem that comes up in other aspects of farming. It, it just almost sounds like you're suggesting that, um, there's a case to be made that if you instead, if you're going to be a mobile greenhouse person, if you instead focus, make it more about the soil health, you'll be better off in the long term. I, yeah, I agree with you, Jordan. That, that would be my point of view. And oftentimes the second crop you see, oftentimes it's a combination of a fruiting vegetable and then a greens crop. Mm -hmm. And uh, the greens crops, uh, say spinach or uh, Swiss chard or kale or any one of those, which are naturally very cold tolerant, I would say, is there another way that we could grow this if we have a market demand for that on another part of the farm with other season extension technologies such as um, low tunnels or row covers or um, things of this nature? And it depends on where you are or have multiple structures. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think I do think that you're right, Jordan, in that having a movable structure that allows precipitation to move through the soil profile on an annual basis would be a benefit. Um, my concern is that farmers are placing themselves at a little bit higher risk for um, for property damage with, with, with wind um, turning those structures over or moving them around. I've seen that fairly often. Well, I'm glad we touched on the mobile stuff, but I would like to spend the rest of this topic focused on those with immobile hoop house structures, if that's all right with you. Sure. <clears throat> Absolutely. Okay. So I, I don't think I want to, I'm going to try not to cover much more new territory because there's a lot we can unpack with what you've already said. So one, okay. let's maybe, do you have any comments to make about, about irrigation water and how to deal with that? So let's say you're someone who I have a feeling you'll say, well, do a water test, <laughs> but so let's mm -hmm. say, maybe we'll start there. You've done a water test and you, you do find that you have high levels of calcium carbonate. Is there anything that can be done? Absolutely. Great question. So what we can do is acidify that water then, uh, which uh, breaks up that those bicarbonates um, and gets our water pH um, and alkalinity down to levels that work and prevent the long-term problems. So way, the way to do that is to inject acid. And um, 
flower growers are very familiar with this um, because, uh, say, hanging baskets of petunias um, need to be, uh, generally need to have their irrigation water acidified. But vegetable growers aren't quite as familiar with the, this approach. It is fairly simple. So <clears throat> you're right. You start with a water test, and then once you have a known um, pH and alkalinity, we can inject acid, and that acid um, can be one of several types. It could be the most common ones in conventional agriculture are going to be sulfuric acid or phosphoric acid. And so I already mentioned that phosphorus tends to be uh, something that's accumulating uh, in soils over time, so I would tend to favor sulfuric acid for that reason. For those that are certified organic, we are generally looking at uh, a food-grade citric acid uh, that ideally would be uh, um, acceptable for organic standards. And we inject that also at a rate that is going to lower our pH and alkalinity, disassociate those um, bicarbonates in the water. It's a fairly simple technology. You can do this with a water-driven pump um, injector that siphons the acid into the irrigation water at a um, constant proportion. Um, so it doesn't matter how long we leave our irrigation system on, the water coming out through that system is going to be um, acidified to an acceptable level. Justin, is there a reason why you, you're first recommending this irrigation injection rather than adding uh, a dry version of one of these products to the soil? I mean, right away, I can see that the appeal of being able to um, set the rate at which it adds it to the water. So eff effectively, you're just balancing your, your pH in the water. But, but is, there, are there, is there any other reason to strongly consider injection over you know, sprinkle, uh, amending the soil in the hoop house? No, I think I think you I think you have a, a good point there, Jordan. That, that this is really not an either-or situation. It's ideally a, a both situation. So my approach would be, ideally, we take a soil test in the fall. Um, I feel like in the in the fall of the year, in northern climates, this might be different uh, in, in in southern climates, but in northern climates, that is when it's a good idea to take a soil sample. So uh, the soil is warm; it's still biologically active. We can get a decent assessment of what's going on there. Um, and it also allows us time to apply any amendments before spring growing season, if um, we can. And so it, generally what we're looking to apply is sulfur. And so an elemental sulfur can be applied in the fall after a soil test to lower that pH. And then this water acidification that I'm talking about really is not going to turn a problem soil around, it's going to prevent a problem from getting worse. Uh, uh, so of those two approaches, applying elemental sulfur uh, in, in a dry form is going to have more potential to lower a pH than uh, acidifying water. Right. So I'd like to see those two approaches, I'd like to see those two approaches used hand in hand. Okay, and then so that you kind of went right into the, my, the other part of my question, which was just based on the soil test, um, you know, where to go from there. You've kind of made one suggestion with the sulfur. I imagine if you do have high levels of, say, phos phosphorus and potassium, it's about not just going for that general 20-20-20, but, but getting more um, specific with a higher N ratio and lower, lower pK ratios. Yeah, so you're correct. So then we begin to form have a an educated approach to this. It's really 
it's really fairly simple. What we're doing is making decisions based on information, uh, the information of what levels those nutrients are in the soil and what levels do the crop needs. And in general, it's going to be a nitrogen and potassium approach. We're probably going to be able to reduce or eliminate any phosphorus applications in our experience. Um, and again, this comes from having visited hundreds of farms that fairly consistently we are looking at nitrogen, potassium, uh, and then sulfur as our major inputs uh, once we're two or three years into this production system. There are exceptions to that. Um, and there are a lot of fantastic guidelines that will tell you how much of those nutrients to use. But bear in mind that for your fruiting vegetables, particularly tomatoes, over time, potassium is going to be needed at a higher um, level than nitrogen as we move into um, a harvest stage for that crop. Right. Judson, we've talked about testing the water and the reasons for that and testing the soil and the reasons for that. Um, is, is that it as far as taking uh, stock of what's going on or is there any other testing we should be thinking about uh, in these, along these lines? Right. Great question, Jordan. So what we want to do is couple that soil testing and amendments and water testing and adjustment with acid with foliar testing. So foliar testing, what we're doing is taking the youngest fully mature leaf from the crop. Um, so what that means is the youngest piece of foliage that is has reached its maximum size. Uh, and then we're sending that into a lab for analysis. Um, and then that will come back and tell us where are we with all those nutrients. So just how well is the plant able to access the nutrients that we know are in the soil. Um, and then we can begin to make some micro adjustments in season. Do we need to now um, add, for example, more, more potassium? Uh, magnesium oftentimes is one that comes back as being deficient in season. Can we make some foliar applications of that to uh, correct an imbalance? Well, the only way we can know for sure is through foliar testing. And the benefit to foliar testing is that it allows us to detect deficiencies or possible toxicities in the crop before we see them visually. So oftentimes, as, as growers, we wait until a plant appears to be pale, and then we begin to try to decipher what is wrong with this, what nutrient are we lacking. But if we do regular foliar testing, say every two to three weeks in season, we detect those problems before they happen, and then we prevent things such as flower drop or uh, low yields due to low nutrients. Uh, that, 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 that makes me want to ask you this, Judson. In New York State, if I'm a grower there, what is the turnaround time for a typical foliar test? If I send that leaf in, how quickly can I get those results? I would say that we should be able to expect that within a work week. So it depends on which lab you work with. Um, the ones I've worked with, if we can get that out on a Monday, hopefully we can get those results back um, via email on a Friday. Wow. So that, um, it, it, just so I can understand you, to, 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 to make sure I understand what the foliar test can be used for, is it the kind of thing where before tomatoes um, are starting to ripen up, like still, you know, still in the spring, if I take that leaf sample yeah. and send it away, can it, can, it, can it help me realize that I'm low on calcium and maybe I could prevent some blossom end rot, for example? Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? That's exactly what I'm talking about, Jordan, is seeing those problems before they manifest themselves and then making corrections in season. 
Judson, I'm going to try one more thing on you as our time winds down here. It's it's a more abstract yep. question, and it's okay to say I, I don't know how to answer that other than you're a bad farmer, Jordan. But um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting being a podcaster and covering these topics because um, I like to think, and I think I've demonstrated in this interview, I have a decent literacy of this stuff. Yes. But what yeah. might surprise lots of my listeners, and this goes for so many topics I cover, is it doesn't necessarily translate into a perfect-looking garden. In other words, I have a hard time going from this the, the, the conceptual level, and I grasp the stuff. It's not that I don't understand it, to execution. I'm not right. looking for you to stroke my ego or reassure me. I am just wondering how common you think that is, you know, where farmers get it, but, and yet they can't execute. Uh, interesting question. Well, I think Jordan, you're you're probably in very good company, and um, that rarely are things the way we wish they were. Um, and for myself, that can be that can be particularly bitter because I can see exactly what I've done wrong and where I should have uh, done something. Um, Farming, it's really not a question of, uh, I think, successful farmers or growers or gardeners. It's the, How can I put this? Let me back up for a second. Um, oftentimes, what I tell people is that success in farming is about doing the right thing at the right time. And that is deceptively simple. And... I see that as probably where most people fall short is they do the right thing, but they do it a week or two later than they should. Controlling weeds, that's a fantastic example. We all know we need to control weeds, whether we do that through some sort of cultivation or uh, mowing or herbicide application, whatever it is. That's a classic example of if we do that too late, even if we've controlled those weeds, we've already lost yield. Um, so I think in terms of this question of execution, it's a matter of, and I agree with you, I think you have a general grasp of here's what I need to do. And most farmers that I work with also probably have that knowledge. Where people fall short is getting it done at the right time. Um, what else can I say about that? And I'm as guilty of that as anyone. Um, and so what that means for for us is that we have to accept that things will not be the way we wish they were at times. But in season, creating, in a sense, a triage list, a list of priorities for every day, every week. And that, since we're, this is a biological system, it's a dynamic system, it's probably best to do that on a daily basis because things change. Temperature, precipitation plant growth, pest presence, um, maybe market conditions change, et cetera, on a daily basis. And so having a, a triage list, I hate to put it that dramatically, but having a list of what absolutely has to be done today and getting that done gets us closer to that objective of doing the right thing at the right time, whether it's fertility, whether it's pest management, whether it's pruning, training, weed control, et cetera. That's great. That's great. That's great advice, Judson. And uh, as you were as you were saying that, I was being I was being 
like lulled into fantasies about the coming season. And I think, I think if something doesn't work out as an extension specialist, you could, you could cross right over into therapy. You know, you've got your, th- you're clearly thoughtful and you've got, I think you've got the right voice for it. Um, well, and I know I, what I do is therapy. Yeah, it is. It is a form therapy. of therapy. Uh, but, uh, uh, at, at any rate, Judson, um, I'm really grateful that you were able to take time away from a busy schedule to join me on the podcast. And I think my listeners will be very appreciative of, of what you've shared today. So thank you very much. Thank you, Jordan. It was an honor to, to be asked to do this. <laughs> today I learned I don't need anything to live on. All right. Episode little, one of 2018 in the bag. Uh, so just to remind you folks, you can find Andrew Mefford's book, well, online, if nowhere else. It's called The Greenhouse and Hoop House Growers Handbook. And if you want to find out more about what Judson Reed is doing, just Google him, Judson Reed and Cornell, and you'll find him. That's about it for this episode. Next week, I'm most likely to feature an interesting conversation I had with a friend of mine, which represents a bit of a follow-up to the very popular episode that I had last year that I co-produced with Jessica Gale on uh, farmer mental health. So for those of you who like that episode, you you may want to make a point of listening next week. All right. Goodbye till next time. I missed you all, and I, I am sorry that I, uh, that I went... A wall for quite a while. Talk to you soon. Oh, I almost forgot. I received another uh, recording from Ted from Alberta. Uh, this time it seems like maybe he's doing his taxes. It kind of sounds like one of those uh, like printing calculators. He's calculating something anyway. So, yeah, you have that to look forward to right now. car to keep my love going strong so we'll run right out into the wilds and braces we'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees and live life like it was meant to be